Good morning, UCC. I keep thinking because I have to keep talking uh, in the midst of this sermon series on this theme, this word of emerge, uh, and what it means for us this summer. There's this thought I've been having um, this year. It really started early, like January of this year. Um, in a, in a new way, this thought gripped me and kind of won't let me go. Like Jesus keeps just pressing it on my heart, this theme of death. And uh, it wasn't very long into the year. We ran into Ash Wednesday, as we usually do in February. And, um, and obviously, I mean, you read about this stuff, things I was reading, the things I was listening to, the things I was hearing, the things I was encountering, just kept coming back. And obviously, Ash Wednesday, death is usually a theme that comes up. This idea of, you know, the, the ashes, the dust, you know, you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. And those thoughts had been on my mind and my heart. And then this, this, this theme and this idea that I ran into on Ash Wednesday is there is this, we, we try to avoid this idea of death. We try to avoid the reality of death. We try to quiet it. We try to put it away. We try to get past it as quickly as possible. We try to have this distance that separates us. And this some of the things I was reading talked about, it's, this, it's actually a, a proximity to the idea of death that makes us spiritually healthy. This reminder that our life is this paradox of wonder and glory and significance and also finite and insignificant, like this paradox of significance and insignificance, of bigness and smallness. And it's this reminder that we're constantly encountering that keeps us, like, keeps things in, in the right kind of perspective, heavenly perspective. And I don't mean like some glad morning when this life is or heaven. I mean like heaven here on earth. What is God doing? It helps remember that my agenda, my presence, my legacy is actually quite small in perspective in comparison to the things that God's doing in the world. So I've just been mulling this over, over, and over again, and just keeps coming up in different ways. And so apparently Jesus has this, there's a work he's wanting to do on me and my heart. It keeps making me think of my favorite verse, set of verses in Ecclesiastes, which might be my, like the only verses that are, like Ecclesiastes is one of those books. Ecclesiastes was my first assignment in Bible college, an intro to preaching class. So I have a unique relationship with Ecclesiastes, this book of ultimate pessimism. And yet when you get past that and go deeper, this, this book of deep-seated wisdom. And there could be a chiasm at play in Ecclesiastes, if that means anything to you. If not, don't worry about it. But if there is, it appears that maybe perhaps the center of the chiasm shows up at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and this won't be on your screen, but I have it here. A good name is better, is better than precious ointment. The day of death, better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. A good name, like it does seem like, like the quintessential pessimistic like dark, depressing passage, right? 
A good name is better than fine perfume, better the day of death than the day of somebody's birth, better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. When I first encountered this in the center of the book of Ecclesiastes, I pushed against it because I had, do, I had to do so much deconstruction surrounding the idea of feasting and the party. I grew up in fundamentalist Christianity where the party was associated with bad things. You don't go to the party. The party's where all the bad stuff happens, right? So you stay away from the party. At all costs, stay away from the party because the party is going to get you in trouble. Granted, there are things at a party that can get you in trouble when done poorly. But imagine my surprise when I discovered in the book of Leviticus of all places that God actually ordained the party. Where God said, you shall party or I will destroy you. <laughs> and I thought, well, my parents never taught me that. So I had to do like all this deconstruction and, and like reclaiming of the party. So then to bump into Ecclesiastes and read this passage of better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, I went, ha, ah, so God's throwing off the feasting? I thought God was the one, and that's not at all what Ecclesiastes is inviting us to. Ecclesiastes is inviting us into some kind of deeper wisdom. That if you ever find yourself on some day of your life, if you ever get a choice and two choices are put before you, a red pill and a blue pill, Thank you for laughing at that. And one of them is to go to a house of feasting, and one of them is to go to a funeral. Ecclesiastes says, choose the funeral. Why? Because a good name, remember the verse that started this? A good name is better than fine perfume. What does it mean by name? Well, it means reputation. It means what you're known for. It means, it means what goes on after your life is done. A name is something that's connected maybe to legacy on some level. Maybe it's, also, maybe it's also the name of the one that you are going to mourn and grieve. Maybe it's their name. Maybe it's your name. But names, reputations, legacies, these things are better than fine perfume. So if you get the opportunity, make your life about something. Because I don't know about you, I can't remember like when I die, like the stories, there, there may be a few parties that I remember, but I'm not typically going to remember. And that, listen, parties are amazing. Do not hear me. Parties are great. Parties are God-ordained, and he will destroy you if you don't participate in them. But the things that make deeper differences are being there for people in the midst of their grief, being around those stories and those reminders that bring us perspective. Why is it that every single time I attend a memorial service and a funeral, I leave with all of this like, <sighs> better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. I very rarely leave a party with all of this newfound perspective. So if you ever get the choice, make sure. And so then I was, and so today, by the way, is just going to be a whole mess of my prayer journal notes that I kind of feel like coalesce at some point. I hope they do for you too. It was like a few, it was a, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I, I helped create and produce this podcast, and we were, we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and there was an episode that I didn't even do, and it was good. Um, it was my best friend, Reed, and he's become one of our teachers, and Reed was talking about the story of Lazarus, the, the raising of Lazarus, and of Mary and of Martha, and he said something I found I mean, how many times have we heard that story, right? We've heard that story a bunch. We're all familiar with the story of Lazarus being raised. And he said something that I just found to be so um, fantastic. I'll read you. This will be on the screen behind me. 
When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them out, uh, about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. So Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, as we know from the story, dies. He goes to be there and to comfort his sisters in their grief and their mourning. Martha is the first one to come out, and Martha says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And then she goes on. She wants to talk. She wants to theologically engage. She wants to process in her grief. I have always connected with Martha far more than Mary. I don't know if we have any Marthas in the room. I'm a Martha in all the stories. I'm the task-driven one. I'm the one that's upset about everybody having a prayer meeting when there's work to be done. Thank you for laughing at that. I'm Martha. Martha, Martha. You are worried about many things. Marty, Marty. It must be something about the Marts in the world. Marty, Marty, you are worried about many things. Mary's I'm always a Martha. And even here, I'm a Martha. When I encounter grief or lament or anything that requires feelings, I shut off my feeler. Ask Myers-Briggs. I am an overextended thinker. In any moment of crisis, I shut off my feeler and I go completely to my thinker. I'm like Martha. I just want to talk. I want to talk about the resurrection. I want to talk about theology. I want to process externally. I want to, maybe I want to distract myself. I don't know if that's good or bad. What I find so interesting is that Jesus engages her. He doesn't say, Martha, Martha, you need to stop thinking so much and just be quiet and lean into your grief. He meets her and says, you want to talk about resurrection? Let's talk resurrection. You want to talk theology? Let's talk theology. Now watch. When he had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you, which he didn't say, but nevertheless. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. And so the Jews said, see now, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What I find interesting that Reed pointed out is that Jesus comes to Mary, and Mary says the exact same line as her sister. I'd never noticed that before in years of studying this story. She says the exact same line word for word that Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Only she doesn't want to talk. She wants to weep. And what does Jesus do? He joins her. I don't know why I find that so unbelievably comforting in this story, that Jesus meets us in our grief and says, what do you want to do? You want to talk? Let's talk. You want to cry? Let's cry. I, 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 better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. A good name is better 
than fine perfumes. And then I'm listening to this other podcast maybe two days later. Um, I've been following, I don't know if any of you have been listening to this, but the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Just an interesting, fascinating, and there's a million things that can be said about thinking critically and critiquing the way they're doing that podcast. I get it, I get it, I get it. That's not my point. I'm not trying to give you a commercial. I do think that underneath it all is this like really important conversation. I actually think it's one of the, like, the most important conversations that we are being invited to have right now in the church of this decade, personally. It's a personal opinion of mine. They're do, they did this episode, not the one that released this week, but the two episodes ago, and they're having this conversation, and towards the last half of that episode, they start having this conversation. If you're not familiar with the podcast, it basically is kind of going through and looking at particularly uh, one particular church story of just like, spiritual abuse and corruption and things getting out of control and then the fall of that and just kind of asking bigger, larger questions about evangelicalism as a whole. I mean, does it feel like you get on the internet every single week and there's a brand new story of one more scandal, one more abuse story, one more issue with one more convention, one more denomination, one more megachurch, one more pastor, you know what I mean? And so, maybe it's just the world that I, nobody, nobody does not even at that, but and so it's asking all of these questions and and towards the end of the episode, Mike Cosper and the one that he's talking with are having this conversation about, you look at these stories of like huge destruction and corruption and scandal and abuse, and you think that what you need to do is you need to respond with an equally big answer and solution. There's this huge, big problem, and so we tend to think in our world of social media that the solution has to be equally big. Big scandal, big answer. And they said, actually, I think that's a part of the problem, is that we keep trying to go big and big and big and big when the answer is actually that we should have just been doing the small, faithful things correctly the whole time. Is the answer to the huge destruction, huge correction, or is it just faithfulness to the things that have always been true about the body of Christ? And so then this line shows up in the podcast for where the, where the guest is saying, I think what we need to do is just remember the, the significance of the small things. And they say, and he says, show up at more funerals, attend more graduations, be at more backyard barbecues, and do it with, and be vulnerable and authentic and compassionate and like Jesus. Better to go to a house of mourning into a house of feasting. And then, then two days later, I wrapped up um, the book I was reading, which happened to be uh, Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown, one of my favorite authors. I've quoted her up here before. Um, and she's talking about what it means to live in this world where we just treat each other like garbage and we're all trying to figure out who we are and be honest about who we are. And towards the end of the book, second, you know, the last two chapters of the book, she starts saying, I think the answer to all of these things is that we just need to actually commit ourselves to showing up. Just commit ourselves to showing up. And then she says this line, I think we need to attend more funerals and go to more graduation parties. I'm not quoting exactly, but you get the idea. Attend more backyard barbecues. Be at more weddings. And just be authentic, vulnerable, compassionate selves. Better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. And, and then two days later, I'm listening to another podcast, which I can't tell you about because it's super secular and explicit, so I can't recommend it. 
but I, nobody laughed at that either. Um, but, but they were talking, and, and, the, and one of the main hosts there was talking about a conversation that he had with one of his mentors, and this quote came out of the middle of this conversation, and it just like grabbed me by the throat as I was listening. He said, my mentor told me one of the most helpful things I've ever heard in my life. He said, one day you're going to die, and people are going to gather together at your funeral, and they're going to hold each other, and they're going to weep, and they're going to console each other, and they're going to be there for each other, and it will be an unbelievably moving time and a moving service. And then they're going to get in their cars, and they're going to go to lunch. The paradox of how meaningful and significant life is, and also how small, finite, and insignificant life is. Better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. And then I was at, two days later, I was at an online conference with a bunch of other Messianic uh, Jews that were gathering in Texas, and I had been on the road far too much, so I just gathered on Zoom. And, and everybody was gathered there, and we have, we have all these um, uh, people with Jewish heritage that find themselves in all kinds of Christian traditions, Catholic and Greek Orthodox, and one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention is actually a, 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 a person of devout Jewish heritage, and, and so we have people there, and people in uh, mainline and non-denominational and Pentecostal, and you just have all of these people gathered together that share this Jewish heritage, and we were all discussing things. And then at some point in the midst of Ephraim Radner's talk on the opening day, he quotes Acts chapter 2. You know Acts chapter 2. You know the passage I'm going to. Not, not the baptism one, the other one. The, the, all the believers were together, the famous one. The one that we all, Acts 2, 42 through 47. We love this passage, don't we? Let's go to it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And what struck me as I listened to Dr. Radner talk was how normal and small the paradox of significant and insignificant those things were. You know what the early church did? And we read it like it's this huge, grandiose thing. They studied the Bible and they met in homes and they ate together and prayed. That's it. They were committed to small things. What, what did emerging look like for them? Like I keep trying to figure out what big, I, I think I'm still addicted to megachurch. I'm sorry. I'm still working it out of my system. I've been here for two years. And every time I go to do this like sermon series, I'm like, emerge. Like I keep seeing like a big slide on the screen with like the word emerge and a big graphic and like a smoke machine and cue the music at the end of the sermon and emerge and and I was just praying this week you know what emerging looked like for them they just met in people's homes and studied the Bible and ate together and prayed that was their big huge grandiose world changing program they showed up at funerals and weddings and graduation parties and backyard barbecues and they did it with intentionality and authenticity and compassion. Watch, listen. And then, and then in the midst of this like terribly mundane thing, 
awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. So was it the wonder and the sign, or were the wonders and the signs a byproduct of getting together in people's homes and eating and praying and studying the Bible together? Is the simple act of faithfulness, was that, was that small, significant, insignificant emerging, was that actually what produced signs and wonders that blew everyone away? All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any who had need. Is that because they had some big benevolence program that they had convinced everybody from the stage to be a part of? Or was it because they simply met together with vulnerability and authenticity and compassion and had backyard barbecues and showed up at funerals and studied the Bible and ate together? And is the natural byproduct of that. You have needs? You have needs? I'll help meet your needs. Was it significant or was it insignificant or is it both? Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Almost like, almost like Acts wants to double down on that. You know what they were doing? They were just meeting in homes and eating food with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. A good name is better than fine perfume. The paradox of the fact that your life and my life, we will all die someday. And our life is so fleeting and yet at the same time, what we do in this life is so, gosh darn significant, isn't it? Which is what those funerals remind us of when we sit there. It invites us into this paradox. And then invites us to leave there and get in our cars and go to lunch. But when you do it from a kingdom perspective, you realize that that lunch all of a sudden becomes a sacred, holy space. More lunches, more graduations. And I, I find that unbelievably comforting this summer. Coming out of a pandemic world and everything's been reordered and readjusted. And I feel like all of our ministries, I, I lead a parachurch ministry, we're all trying to figure out how to like recreate. Better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Maybe the answer is in all the stuff that we've been doing for 2,000 years that we tend to just overlook. So would our commitments this summer be more Sunday dinners at the Ellis's house and at your house and my house? I live all the way on Batavia. It's a drive, but let's figure it out. Would it be showing up at funerals and graduation parties? Would it be backyard barbecues, realizing that those are the spaces where lives intersect with vulnerability and authenticity would we remind ourselves that that's where signs and wonders happen? I wonder if those signs and wonders were big, huge, unbelievable miracles, or if those signs and wonders were the kinds of life-changing stories that were really insignificant and yet changed the course of a person's life. Would we show up and volunteer at more hours of coffee shops? 
when we get to know a college student who comes by every Tuesday because that's the kind of emerging that changes the course of people's history. Because our lives will be over one day and they're really insignificant and yet they couldn't be more significant while we're here. Let's pray. Father God, I feel like I just, I, I, I am barely even acquainted. Like, I feel like I don't even know the wisdom that Ecclesiastes is trying to draw us to. It's, it's, I feel like there's miles of depth that I'm so far away from tapping into. Um, would, would you remind us of um, how significant our lives are while at the very same time, would you remind us of how insignificant our lives are, that we spend so much time trying to survive or achieve our great you know, goals and objectives and pursue our agendas and figure out who we are, and, and in the midst of it, it's all going to, it's like a mist, it's like a vapor, it just comes and it goes, and yet that mist and that vapor can breathe life into dry bones, it can be used by you to do unbelievable things but we so often just get it a little twisted. Would you save us from this idea that there has to be some amazing church program or initiative or even, even mission and vision and value statements and strategies and five-year goals? And Would you just invite us to dinner? Would you invite us to break bread together? Would you invite us to show up at funerals and realize that a backyard barbecue is more holy and sacred than we realized and listen listen for where you're showing up in the most daily normal mundane places that we can pull back the curtain on who you are and what you're doing in the world in places that matter the most to people in their everyday lives remind us that emerging is often, it's like a seed being planted. It's not loud, it's not amazing. It doesn't show up with lights and soundtracks. It's planted in the earth. You don't even see anything happening. One day it breaks through the surface of the soil and slowly remind us that the work of the kingdom is small. It's like yeast worked into a lump of dough. It's like a treasure buried in a field. Remind us of how hidden, how small, how insignificant and how significant the kingdom is and how we find it. Save us from this idea that we have to just make something big and loud and amazing and brash. And I think of Jeremiah's message last week to act justly and to walk humbly, to love mercy. These are, these are small, everyday things. May it be true for us and our church. Pray all this in the name of Jesus this morning.